You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Seth, I put in front of you the opening paragraph of one of your favorite books. Do you recognize it? Uh, yeah, I do. This is War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells. That's right. Now, what I'd like you to do, if you're willing, is to read this out loud. It's an edited version of that famous first paragraph. And as you do, I'm going to call out some emotions. Uh, all right. Why? Are you reacting to the text? No, I may be reacting to the text, but what I'd like you to do is, after I call out the emotion, read the next line with that appropriate emotion. My goodness, you're asking me to act. Uh, you know, Orson Welles could do that. I'm not sure that I can. Well, I have a lot of confidence in you. Okay, so begin with the first line, and you'll just read it just normally, if, if you can do that, the opening to War of the Worlds. Okay. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. Fear. That, as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger. Elation. I thought about them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. Rage. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish. More rage. Intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and now slowly... Love, now love before you pop a gasket. And slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. So when you feel the emotion of love, you slip into a southern accent? Did I? I, I, I'd be pleased to think that I did. (laughs) A moody adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm sure it will sell. As humans, we have a wide array of emotions. I mean, we can exhibit a multitude in a single day or even in a short snatch of time. Ah, oh, what a splendid day. Wait, did I get a parking ticket? $175? God That's not fair. How's anyone supposed to know you can't park on a sidewalk? There's no one even here. I won't stand for this. No, this will not stand. Justice, it will be mine. And we often wish we could get a handle on our emotions. Sorry, officer. I know, I know. It's a total violation to deface a police officer's vehicle, especially with chartreuse paint. I kind of lost it. But the ticket was so bogus. How dumb of you. Well, not you. I mean, sorry. And we'll use our emotions to influence other people. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry again. Please don't give me another ticket. Please. Which isn't always successful. I'm Molly Bentley. Another ticket? God! But this whole mess of emotions, they may get us in a world of trouble, but if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be human. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. Now, emotions themselves are not just some peculiar weakness of our behavior, or even some sort of trait. Like blue eyes or something like that. Right. They're a survival mechanism, a shortcut to action. So emotion is obviously beneficial to survival. And here's one that clearly has an evolutionary advantage. Hi, Gary. Hi, Molly. I have something. I'm going to set it down in front of you. Okay. Now it's covered up. Then I'm going to reveal it. And I want you to describe what it is and also your reaction to it. You ready? Okay. Okay. So you're putting what looks like a covered plate in front of me. And lifting that, ew. Um, okay, so it's a banana peel, what looks like perhaps a stale piece of bread, 
And then the most disconcerting aspect of it is a sort of mass of white goo. Is that mayonnaise? Yes, and it's heated. Okay, I'm, that was a little visceral there. I kind of felt that in the back of my throat. It smells, and I'm going to have to push it away. <laughs> it does. The banana peel is from the garbage in the back. <laughs> that I believe. It's, it's the banana peel and bread, no problem. It's the, uh, the heated mayonnaise is by far the most disgusting thing on this plate. <laughs> Go ahead and cover that back up. Okay, so Gary's disgust, his revulsion, well, it all seems like a pretty straightforward and adaptive response to the world because it keeps us from ingesting or mucking about with substances like heated mayonnaise and rotting banana peels that could make us ill. But it's not that simple. Your gross-out could be another person's delight, says psychologist Rachel Hers. For example, the cheese kasu marzu, which is this very, very runny sheep's cheese that's a delicacy on the island of Sardinia, and it is filled with live maggots. And the live maggots are squirming around, and they can jump up to six inches, and they could land on you while you're eating, and this is a delicacy, although I personally would not want to try it. And I assume you haven't tried it. I have not. <laughs> okay. Well, look, you know, at least I can understand what's going on here. I, I'm not partial to eating maggots, dead or alive for that matter, but at least I understand why, because there's some sort of disease. But there are other things that make us queasy, and a lot of them come from our own bodies. Now, I'll, I'll give an abbreviated list here in case there are listeners trying to eat a meal at the same time they're, they're listening to the show. But, you know, mucus, feces, vomit, so forth. Why would our own body fluids gross us out? Well, our own body fluids don't really gross us out when they're on the inside of us. It's only when they leave us and we can see them on the outside that we become repulsed by them. And I think a really good example is saliva, which is quite salient in terms of the fact that it's almost on the outside. So you think about the saliva that's in your mouth right now, and it probably seems perfectly fine to you. But if I asked you to spit into a glass and then drink from that glass, you'd think that was disgusting. And yet only seconds ago, it was inside your mouth, virtually in the identical state, and you had no problem with it. And so one of the major issues surrounding the emotion of disgust is how the outside could contaminate us on the inside. Even stuff that was already in us, once it's out of us, it becomes suspect. And it's especially suspect if it's the bodily fluids from somebody else. Although there are circumstances like lovemaking, for instance, when other people's bodily fluids can be highly attractive. Now, what about you know what's going on in the brain when we when we feel, for example, disgust? Uh, if we shove somebody who is feeling disgusted uh, into an MRI machine and looked at their brain, would there be sort of a disgustometer section? Or, I mean, I don't know some some part of the brain that would light up and you'd say, "Yep, they're feeling disgusted." Well, yes, in fact, there is, and it's called the anterior insula, and it's a section of the brain that's tucked between the temporal, the frontal and the occipital lobe. And this particular part of the brain, it controls a variety of things. It also controls our experience of taste, and that's important from the point of view of the origins of the emotion of disgust. The bitter taste reaction is actually the basic primitive version of emotional disgust. It also it controls addiction and lust and a whole variety of other sorts of things, but it is also critical for disgust. So if you're looking at an overflowing toilet and I have your brain hooked up, I could see your anterior insula lighting up. My goodness. So you, you, you could indeed have a little LED on people's foreheads to <laughs> indicate that they're, they're disgusted by, uh, by, by something. And by the way, disgust isn't limited to, you know, these sort of, I don't know, uh, biological things. <laughs> I mean, the disgust can also apply to behavior. Is that the same kind of disgust? Would that lobe in the brain light up if you were disgusted by somebody's political views or their behavior somehow? Well, you're making an excellent point. And there's sort of distinction, I would say, between their behavior, let's say, for instance, someone who's picking their toes at the dinner table or slopping their face into the food. You know, that kind of behavior, this kind of animalistic behavior, we find that disgusting for a specific reason. And the reason is because it's reminding us of the fact that we are actually animals, even though we have all kinds of codes and rules to try to uh, pretend that we're not. We are actually animals, and that fact is very disturbing because animals die, and when people act piggishly and animalistically, it reminds us that deep down, this is a fact we have to deal with. Well, what's the grossest thing, Rachel, that you've ever had to write about? 
Well, <laughs> that's a great question. And I realized, in fact, while I was writing the book that I had the sort of disgust face grimace most of the time that I was sitting writing and sort of inducing a disgusted mood in myself. But I would have to say the thing that I came across as just sort of a, a socio-cultural, whatever you might want to call it, that really grossed me out was eyeball tattooing. I'd say that that really sent a serious cringe through me. And the fact that people actually get their eyeballs tattooed, I think it's on the, the white of the eye. But that is just something I can't quite you know, figure out myself. Well, one thing that did strike me about your book is that what is you know, gross to, to me is not necessarily gross to somebody else. And why that strikes me as strange is because I had the feeling that I was just born with a sensitivity to things that I now consider disgusting. And yet, you write about, for example, in the realm of food, you know, there are plenty of people who eat monkey brains, even when the monkey's still alive, and that's all perfectly okay, even though it makes me feel ill. So there's obviously a big cultural component here. It isn't all hard wiring. Well, that's absolutely true. And what uh, disgust is called the instinct that has to be learned. You know, once we start getting disgust, it feels automatic. It feels totally instinctual. But we don't experience disgust when we're young children. We actually have to learn to be disgusted, and we have to learn what to be disgusted by. And the first socialization lesson that most children get is toilet training, which is why feces tend to be fairly universally disgusting. But it does vary by culture. And the learning, the, the sort of teachings of the culture as to how bad or not something is very widely. So you see it in not only in what people eat, but how people eat. So for example, if I took food with my left hand in certain cultures, I would be considered totally disgusting. That was like completely forbidden to do. We don't care which hand touches food in our culture. So, you know, all these things get built into the culture and it's how we act, what we do, when we do it, where we do it. And all those things are coded by various cultures and they become disgusting disgusting or not, depending upon what culture you come from. And the other thing is, I think disgust is a luxury emotion because it's only when you have the choice, for instance, let me see, do I want to eat the centipede or do I want to eat the camembert? Hmm. Okay, I'll go with the camembert that we can say the centipede is disgusting. But if you are starving to death and you're in the middle of the wilderness and the only thing that's possibly available to eat are centipedes, you eat them and that's the way to go. So we have the luxury to be disgusted because we have choice. And other animals usually also don't have any choice, which is why I don't think they've evolved disgust. Well, finally, Rachel, I don't know anyone who doesn't occasionally get disgusted, but are there such people? People who are psychopaths actually are fairly disgust-free. And this is an unfortunate thing for the victim because one of the things that people can try to use when they're being attacked is to release some bodily fluid because it does tend to stop most people, but it won't stop psychopaths. And their anterior insula is also very deactivated and and very sort of non-responsive when you do examine that relative to normal people under normal disgust conditions. But there's another situation where people can't recognize when other people are disgusted and really don't understand the emotion of disgust. And that's people who have the disease Huntington's chorea. And this is a genetic disorder and it's a motor degeneration. And What's so interesting is that people who, well before they ever show any symptoms of the disease, cannot recognize that disgust face grimace. They don't know what emotion people are feeling when they're looking like that. And they also don't really understand what would be wrong with eating centipedes for dinner. So it seems to be that there's this blindness of disgust in people with Huntington's disease. And the reason for it neurologically is that the part of the brain that's breaking down in Huntington's disease is right next to the anterior insula. And so it's causing problems with the anterior insula as well. And this is why it's believed that people with Huntington's disease are so poor at recognizing the experience of disgust in other people or understanding disgust. Well, Rachel Hertz, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Thank you, Seth. That's disgusting. Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion is psychologist Rachel Hertz's book. For today's stunt, you were going to lie covered up to your head, not in dirt. Oh my God. But in these worms, over 300,000 worms, they're going to be covering you every inch of your body, in between your toes, your legs, under your armpits. We're even going to provide you guys with earplugs to keep them from crawling inside your head and laying eggs. My fear factor isn't taking a worm bath. I mean, I do that occasionally anyway. For me, spiders or cockroaches would be a lot worse. 
coming up. Think you can bluff your way through anything? Well, the chances are pretty good. Not because humans are good liars, they're not, but because we're also terrible lie detectors, if you believe what I just told you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I've always thought of myself as a fairly mellow guy. Sometimes our emotions take us by surprise. In general, when I'm, when I'm in a situation that I think might get me angry, I either use humor to diffuse it or uh, I back out of it. But none of that prepared me for having a child. And it was my three-year-old son who really set me off one time. I remember specifically, for some reason, he decided to hit my wife and hit her on the face. And I asked him, little man, please don't hit your mother. And he does it again. I said, please don't hit your mom. This time he did it again. But he smirked at me and looked at me, and I just lost it. And all those guys that you see in the uh, baseball games that are chewing their kids out or in the supermarket, they lose it. I've always told myself I'm not going to be that kind of father. I'm not going to be the yelling dad. I won't be the angry dad. And there I was. I lost it. I was a hothead. I was a yelling dad. I was a screaming dad. I picked up the little guy by his shoulders and chewed him out and I had never ever done that before but the thing that that snapped me out of it was the look of fear in my son's eyes we've all experienced anger but anger is really a family of emotion it includes irritation rage exasperation all of which Gabriel might choose to describe his account of losing it that day with his young son and the retelling of our emotional lives can be key to understanding what we're feeling says Paul Ekman Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of California, San Francisco, who, among other honors, was named one of Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people. When we talk about emotion, human emotion, often there are single words that are used. We're happy, we're sad, we're fearful, we're angry. And um, in some ways, it's not, it's not a fair description of all that a human being can experience and feel. And, and how so? Well, those terms are abstractions, and they cover a whole variety of related experiences. So I talk about them as being a family. Uh, the anger family, for example, not only varies in intensity from annoyance to fury, but there is sulking. That's a kind of anger, not a very nice one. There's vengefulness, there's resentment, there's hatred, there's exasperation, there's indignation. Those are all different members of the anger family. But the best way to think about emotions is in terms of stories, you know, little storylines, little narratives. Like resentment, uh, I resent the fact that you got what I should have. That's the resentment story. That's very different than vengeance. You need to be punished for what you did. So that's a, a much easier way, and it's also the way that works cross-culturally. When I worked in a Stone Age culture in New Guinea a long time ago, almost a half century ago, I couldn't use these abstract words, but I could give them stories. You're, you're about to fight, or your child has died. Well, then I got the same expressions you see anywhere in the world. But you know, emotions are not unique to humans. I mean, the being human, it's wonderful to be a human being, and we, as human beings, we have language and we can reflect on our emotions more than any other animal can. But if one of the things I maintain, much to the annoyance of some of my colleagues, is if it's unique to humans, it's not an emotion. Every emotion you can f have to be able to find, at least in some other primate, and many of them you can find in non-primates as well. One of the really fascinating points that you make is the, is the role of language in expressing emotion, that we need to have the language in order to express it and even to understand what it is that we're feeling ourselves. Now, you're shaking your head, so I've gotten that wrong, so please correct me. What is it that I'm not understanding? Well, 
expression. The major signal systems for the expression of emotion, the face and the voice, to a lesser extent, the posture, that is language-free. And uh, before children have language, we see their emotions, and we wouldn't be able to be adequate caretakers if we couldn't know how they're feeling uh, before they can use words. But once you get words, you can think about the emotions you've had. You can reflect about it. You can consider whether you like or don't like how you behaved or why this occurred. That's all the reflective process, which is not emotion itself. I wonder if you could give me an example with that and how language helps you to think about an emotion or experience and why that is central to being human. Well, it's only humans who have language who can symbolically represent experience or imagination. I mean, I doubt that there's any other animal other than humans that can imagine a catastrophe and have an emotional reaction to what they're imagining. A language allows you also to fabricate. Do you know I spent five hours on the phone before I came here with President Obama? That's a total lie. But I think I said that rather convincingly until the end, and I couldn't help smiling a little bit about it. Lang the language allows us to invent, to create, to lie. Those are things that only humans can do. But if you don't have a word for an emotion, uh, in Tahiti, they don't have a word or even the concept of feeling sad when you've had an important loss, like the rejection by a lover. So they show all the sad behavior, and if you ask them, why are you sitting over in the corner so dejected, they say, well, I'm sick. But you can't really think about it if you don't have a name for it. Well, finally, I want to ask you about lying. You just told me you had this long conversation with President Obama, told me you were lying. Um, I probably could have guessed that because, as I understand, humans are terrible liars. Yes, but humans are just as bad as lie detectors. So most people can't tell when someone's lying to them, although they think they can. Most, particularly the police think they're good at it. And all of my evidence shows that most police are really not good at judging it from demeanor. But that's not what they, that's really not their usual job. If they're an interrogator, it is. And there are some interrogators who are quite good. Uh, most are not. With training, they can get better, and we do give training to law enforcement because I'd like them to do a better job and most of them would like to do a better job. So if we're terrible liars and we're terrible lie detectors, what is the evolutionary purpose of that? Because it seems like there would be an evolutionary advantage to be able to tell whether someone is lying to you. Well, this is a big argument in the literature and uh, Dawkins has taken the position that you just described. And John Smith and I criticized Dawkins on this. And, I, you know, I had the opportunity to live in a Stone Age culture. So I lived in the kind of environment which was where humans existed most of the time they were on this planet. There were about 200 people in that village. There were no rooms that you could rent by the hour. Most huts had no doors. If you were discovered as a liar, you couldn't change jobs or change spouses or change villages. So the cost for being caught in a lying was ostracism, which probably meant death for you and your offspring. So my bet is that lying was a rather rare occurrence. If it had been a more frequent occurrence, we would probably be better at it, and we'd be better at catching it. But it didn't have much use in our ancestral environment because these were closed, small communities, and you needed to be accepted and cooperated with. So not that people didn't occasionally lie, but if they got caught, the costs were very high. If you get caught now, so you, may, so you get a divorce, you marry someone else. You change your name, you move to another city. You can do all the kinds of things that you couldn't do in the ancestral environment. Paul Ekman, thank you very much for talking with me, and I'm sincere in my thanks to you. Do you believe me? I do. <laughs> Paul Ekman is Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. His pioneering work has been studying the role of facial expressions in conveying emotions. Which might seem instinctual, right? Smile and the whole world smiles with you. Yeah, but what happens if you feel happy but you just can't smile? Does the whole world grin anyway? How do others react in the absence of facial cues? Well, that question gets at the heart of research into the social implications of facial paralysis and facial movement disorders. This is psychologist Kathleen Bogart's area of study at Tufts University in Boston. 
Her interest in the subject is partly personal. Kathleen has had since birth Mobius syndrome, a condition that causes facial paralysis. Kathleen, if someone tells me something amusing but I prevent myself from smiling, will I still experience happiness and delight at what they said? Well, and that's a good question. Um, There's a theory in psychology that's over 100 years old called the facial feedback theory that actually suggests that the smile comes before the emotion. We smile and then we feel happy. Kind of the lay feeling that people have is that they smile because they're happy. But this theory kind of suggests the opposite. There's a larger theory called um, the James Lang theory of emotion that suggests the whole body is this way. The example that James used is that when you are running away from the bear, you find yourself running and then you realize you're scared. That seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because certainly it seems like you feel the fear and then you run or someone says something funny and then you smile. It really doesn't seem to be the other way around. It's true. And this theory is somewhat controversial. And some of my research actually suggests that it is certainly not always the case. I study people with facial paralysis and they do indeed feel emotion even though they're not able to move their faces. Now, this gets at this larger question of the role of facial expression in conveying emotion. How would you sum up what the role is, perhaps even more than what you just outlined? Uh, in conveying emotion, the face is crucial. It's certainly the, the most salient way that we express emotion, although, of course, we do express emotion with our bodies and voices as well. But with our face, we have hundreds of muscles that we use to form various basic evolutionarily adaptive emotions, as well as lots of other expressions that we use to maintain the dynamics of a conversation, for example, suggest that you're ready to take a turn in the conversation, you might uh, raise your eyebrows. You know, what we've been talking about right now is the back and forth between two people in expressing and receiving emotion or sharing emotion. But we feel emotions on our own when we're alone. And would our faces reflect what emotions we're feeling when we're by ourselves? That's a good question. Um, There's some research that suggests that when we are with other people, we do express ourselves in a more exaggerated way than when we're alone. People do tend to smile even when they're alone if they read something they like or if, you know, they're watching a television show and it cracks them up. But there is a social aspect to emotional communication, and we are more expressive when we're with other people. It is true. If you see someone laughing as they're walking down the street and they don't have a cell phone somehow attached to them, you do start wondering about their sanity. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a very good social behavior to (laughs) laugh to yourself out in public. (laughs) Now, your interest in facial paralysis has a personal angle. You have something called Mobius syndrome. What is that, and and what causes it? Well, Mobius syndrome is a condition that results in facial paralysis and a difficulty moving the eyes from side to side. So what this means is that the 6th and 7th cranial nerves are underdeveloped in me and in uh, other individuals with Mobius syndrome. They're not sure what the cause of the condition is, but it's, it's quite a rare condition. About 2 to 20 per million births have Mobius, so it's quite rare. What expression or movement are you able to have in your face? I'm able to make a small smile, and I can blink my eyes one more than another. And this is rather rare in Mobius. Usually with Mobius, people are typically completely paralyzed. Does it feel to you that your face is paralyzed? Or does it feel stiff? No, it doesn't feel stiff. I have full sensation, and so I can feel proprioceptively where my face is in space, and I can certainly feel you know, pain um, or heat and cold and things like that. And, of course, with Mobius, we are able to move our jaws so we can chew and we can talk. So I can feel my jaw moving. I can feel my cheeks moving as I move my jaw. Well, we were just laughing a little bit earlier, so I have a sense that you're not limited in how you can convey emotion or how you experience it yourself. Or are there limits on on what you feel and what you can share? 
Well, I certainly don't feel that there are limits to my emotional experience. I, you know, I certainly feel that I experience emotion in the same way that others do. Now, the way I convey it, of course, is different. When I meet someone for the first time, um, people will automatically look to my face for emotional cues. So I have to be more expressive in my other channels with my body, with gesturing, with my posture, with my vocal tone, with laughter, with what I choose to say to, to kind of get them to understand me. Was it your experience, your personal experience, that led you to study this connection between facial paralysis and emotion? Well, yes, because when I started studying psychology, I noticed that there was much research on the importance of the face to social interaction, but there is almost no research on the consequences for those of us who lack facial expression. And I thought that was just, you know, an area that was just begging for research. And it also allows me to do research that helps individuals like me who have facial movement disorders. I think one thing that can help individuals with facial paralysis is that when they're more expressive with their bodies and voices, it also helps them to be more in tune with their own emotions. And I think it also makes them more in tune to other people's cues. Um, So that actually can help everyone with their social confidence. That's interesting because it comes back to a point you made earlier that maybe we smile and then we feel happy. I wonder if the gesture that we make or the physical movement that we make has to originate in the face. It might originate in the body. We could open our arms in an embrace or raise our arms up in a cheer and then feel the corresponding emotion. I think that's definitely a possibility of what's happening. I think that that happens in everyone. It's certainly not just something that we with facial paralysis are compensating. I think that when we talk about facial feedback, we need to be sure that we're thinking about it in the broader term of the James Lang theory of emotion, that our whole bodies are, are engaged in what's happening in our lives. Well, on this idea of gestures preceding the emotion. Do you think when drivers flip each other off on the highway, which I would assume happens in the Boston area occasionally, <laughs> do you think they, Just they, a tad. <laughs> you think they flip each other off? Do you think they, they exhibit the gesture first and then get angry? Oh, yeah. Well, the uh, if we're talking about it that way, it, it would suggest that the flip-off would come first. Um, <laughs> or it could be a feedback loop. It certainly is a feedback loop. If you flip one person off, then the other person's going to go for it. And So maybe that's a cure for driver's rage. Just We well, can't sit on your hands while you're driving. Maybe <laughs> resist that urge and you won't get so upset. Um, well, finally, where does your research take you now? What are some of the big questions that you're asking? Well, one of the next steps that that we're doing is looking at the way individuals um, in a dyad interact. Um, So we do know that people with facial paralysis or people with Parkinson's disease are viewed as less happy, less extroverted, less sociable due to their facial uh, movement disorder. So the next step is to see what happens when we actually put an individual with this condition and an individual without a condition into an interaction, which of course happens every day for these individuals. So we want to see whether individuals who don't have facial paralysis tend to start to mimic individuals with facial paralysis in the sense that they become less expressive with their face and become more expressive with their bodies and voices. And we want to see what individuals with these conditions can do to help these interactions go more smoothly. Kathleen Bogart, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. Kathleen Bogart is a psychologist at Tufts University. You know, all this talk about emotion raises the question of just how universal emotions are. Would an alien have emotions? Personally, I believe that it would. It would find emotions very useful as a survival mechanism. But in popular culture, think of the aliens such as Spock or Data. They're very stoic and cool and calculating. They don't seem to have emotions at all. Yes, very logical. 
although technically speaking, of course, Data was an android, not an alien. But these Hollywood writers like to make these creatures emotionally cool. But I think that, in fact, the aliens really would have emotions because, after all, they're shortcuts to behavior that has survival value. So if I had to bet, I'd say that E.T. is going to have emotions. Up next, what happens when the brain's emotional cues misfire and the connection between despair and creativity? We second that emotion on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you emotions, let's round you up. Happy. Sad. Despair. Nervousness. Pride. Expectancy. Vengefulness. One of the best ways to understand this cornucopia of feeling is to note what happens when emotions go wrong. Meaning not just when you have an inappropriate response, such as giggling in a meeting when your boss is making a presentation. Especially when he's not telling any jokes. (laughs) I mean, that can be explained as nervousness or the boss having spinach on his teeth. No, it's when the brain misfires and produces emotions randomly. My name is Gordy Slack, and I'm a science writer. Gordy's favorite writing subject, intriguing studies about the brain. There was a really interesting case of a kid who was born laughing. He was laughing in the delivery room as the doctor pulled him out of his mom. And the doctor said, wow, I've never seen anybody do this at that age. It's usually kids don't start laughing until they're many months old. At some point, the parents realized that the kid was laughing every 15 or 16 minutes. And once they took him to a doctor, a neurologist, and they said, he's going to laugh in 15 seconds. And then the kid broke into this pearl of kind of eerie laughter. It was, they call it hollow laughter. It's not mirthful because the kid's not really experiencing humor. Although as the kid got older, he would start to try to find things in his environment to explain the laughter. As it turned out, the child had a serious kind of epilepsy. That's the product of what's called a hypothalamic hematoma, a non-cancerous tumor in a part of the limbic system of the brain that controls an immense number of behaviors. And studying cases such as his allows neuroscientists to understand what areas of the brain are wired for expressing emotion. Gordy, the child who had the condition of regular bouts of spontaneous laughter had epilepsy. What's the connection? Well, the epilepsy was causing a seizure in the part of the hypothalamus that is a place that were you to stimulate it, it probably would also cause laughter. But the the most common image of a seizure is a full-body seizure. This doesn't sound like the traditional seizure that we're familiar with. Well, there are generalized seizures, which are the kind that cause you to fall on the ground and shake, that affect the entirety of the brain. And then there are focal seizures, which just cause a very particular kind of reaction. Sometimes they cause people to see a kind of light or even to have a kind of smell or to have a deja vu experience. And people who have seizures in this one particular place on the hypothalamus laugh. And this is a part of the brain that is associated with expression of emotion in general or of happiness or of laughter, which could be separate from happiness? Well, the scientists working on this are just now trying to sort that out. There is another part of the brain in the frontal lobe that a scientist at UCLA, Itzhak Fried, stimulated. And every time he touched it with a, a little electrical shock, the patient who was undergoing surgery for her epilepsy would laugh hysterically. She was awake. And each time they touched it and she would laugh, they'd ask her what was so funny. And whatever it was she was looking at, she would say, oh, it's those 
those surgeons over there standing around in robes, don't they look funny? So she would come up with an explanation for her laughter. So the reason I mentioned that is that there are many parts of the brain that are involved in the experience of laughter. What has this research suggested, if anything, about the origin of emotions in the brain? It suggests that emotion and the expression of emotion have a complex relationship both to the world that stimulates it and also to the internal workings of of the brain. That is, there's not a simple relationship. It's not like you see something funny that goes to your amygdala, you feel an emotion, then that goes to your motor cortex and you laugh. There are very complicated cycles and, and feedback loops that scientists are just now starting to sort out. And another disorder that helps us understand emotion is Capgras delusion. What is that? Well, the Capgras delusion accompanies a certain kind of a brain injury that interrupts the connection between your visual recognition of someone and your emotional recognition of them. So usually in order to recognize somebody, you think you just need to see them. But in fact, to really recognize them, especially if it's somebody who would evoke a strong response like a, you know, your spouse or a child or a relative or a very close friend, you also, in order to believe it's them, would have to have a strong emotional response, even though you might not be that aware of it. Well, if you have this particular kind of brain injury, you don't have that emotional response. So you see, let's say, for example, in a famous case explored by the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran from the University of San Diego, you see your mom and you think, wow, that person looks a lot like my mom, but it isn't. And the reason, and you don't know why, how you know that it isn't, you just know that it's not she. And it turns out that the reason you think it's not she is because you're not having this subliminal or unconscious emotional reaction to that person and you always have had it before. One of the interesting things is that there's a different route that your hearing takes to your emotion. So if your mom is before you and you say, get out of here, you're an imposter, you look like my mom, but you're not, she walks into the other room and calls you on the telephone, you'll say, Mom, you won't believe what just happened. This woman came in. She looked so much like you. I'm so grateful that you called. So what does this say about how we understand the world, that there's this emotional component that's interwoven that helps us make sense of the world? All of the parts of the world that are dear to us, that are important to us, that we value, have a great deal of emotional content for us. And when that is interrupted or tweaked in the case of, say, depression, and you can't feel the emotional connection that you ordinarily do, or the emotion is turned in a much darker color than it ordinarily would be, it really can turn your life inside out. It's not just that it's a bad feeling not to feel the emotion of your mother, it's that you cannot really know that it's she without that emotion. So our our grasp, our knowledge of the world is as emotional as it is cognitive. Gordy Slack, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was fun. Gordy Slack is a science writer. Well, we have so many emotions, and sometimes it can feel as though our own wiring has gone haywire when we experience troubling emotion that we just can't shake, sadness or grief, perhaps, which can develop into depression. But these states of being can help fuel creativity, You know, this calls to mind a romanticized image of the manic inventor or the genius who also has the blues. But are such feelings necessary to tap into the imagination? Imagine How Creativity Works is Jonah Lehrer's book. Jonah, you write about how frustration inspires creativity, but doesn't it just as well cause people to just sort of give up? Well, sometimes it does, but but I think sometimes even giving up can be healthy. When we're really frustrated, I think what the brain is trying to tell us is that 
we should take a break, we should take a shower, go on a walk, take a hike. And, and what the science actually shows is that when you're stuck with a really hard problem, a seemingly impossible problem, that you're actually most likely to solve that problem, not when you're thinking about it, not when you're juiced on caffeine, staring at your computer screen, but actually only after you stop searching for the answer. That is when the answer arrives. So it comes when you're shampooing your hair in the shower, it comes when you're on that hike and you left your phone behind, it comes when you're playing ping pong. Are there any uh, well-known historical examples of how this mechanism works, or doesn't anybody ever tell how it works? <laughs> One story I tell in my book is is the story of Bob Dylan in May 1965, when he is just incredibly frustrated. He is burnt out, and he actually tells his manager after a series of shows in the UK that he is quitting the music business. He is done with the singing and songwriting. He's moving to a cabin in rural Woodstock, New York. He's not even going to take his guitar. He's going to become a painter. So he's in Woodstock for a couple days, and that's when he gets this familiar feeling, what he calls the itch of unwritten words. So he does the only thing he knows how to do. He gets out a pencil and a pad of paper, and he starts to scribble, and he doesn't stop scribbling for the next several hours. He describes it as if he's vomiting forth words. And somewhere in these 25 pages of scribbles, what he finds are the lyrics to Like a Rolling Stone. This immortal song, one of the most influential songs in rock and roll history. So that's a clear example of... Here's Bob Dylan, who, who was so burnt out, he had no idea how to reinvent himself. He had no idea what kind of songs he wanted to write. And that's why he actually quit the music business. And then just when he quit, he let himself relax for a couple days. And then he had his big epiphany. He had this moment of insight. I think that's rather remarkable. Do we have any idea how the brain works in that regard? In, in the sense that it's telling you, look, I can solve this problem for you. Just leave it to me for a while. Uh, you know, alpha mm-hmm. rhythm, something, something will happen. And sooner or later, yeah. I'll wake you up in the middle of the night and say, this is it. We don't really understand how it happens. I mean, we know it's an unconscious process. Scientists have studied the mechanisms, you know, the neural correlates of it in fMRI machines. And a part of the brain called the anterior superior temporal gyrus seems to play an important role. It's It's an obscure bit of brain in the back of the right hemisphere. It's also associated with stuff like the processing of jokes and the interpretation of metaphors. And it seems to be especially important for drawing together remote associations between seemingly unrelated things. What about the influence of emotions? Because it may be apocryphal, but you you hear about songwriters. They fall in love. They're happy. And their songs take a nosedive (laughs) in terms of success. That that, that being happy was the worst thing that could have happened to their careers. Is, Is that merely apocryphal or just an interesting story? Well, in recent years, scientists have found that emotions do have this profound role on cognition and the way we think. And they really play a big role in shaping the creative process as well. So scientists have found, for instance, that when people are in a positive mood, when they're happy and relaxed, they're actually much more likely to have a moment of insight. And in fact, you can show people a five-minute video of Robin Williams doing stand-up. It's quite funny stuff. Then they're a little happier. Then they solve 20% more of these inside puzzles, which are quite difficult. So, so simply giving people a fleeting mood can actually make them much happier. Now, sadness turns out to have its virtues too. When people are sad, and you can induce a sad mood pretty quickly by showing them a short video about death and cancer, sadness actually makes people more focused, more vigilant, more attentive, and also more persistent. So people who are sad, they make better collages, they write better prose, they write better essays, because they refuse to give up. They're willing to work on it for harder and for longer. So being sad might actually be to your advantage if you're in the creative business. Yeah. So it, it won't help you have that big epiphany. You know, it'll make it harder to have that breakthrough moment. But if you've already had the breakthrough and you need to just put in the work, sadness is what you're looking for. Well, you know, if you read about, for example, the classical composers, you know, not too many of these guys seem to have been very happy. I, I wonder if that's just because, you know, the general populace wasn't very happy. I mean, I don't know if it's statistically significant, but it sounds like it might be. There might be some cause and effect in there. You know, there is a big anecdotal literature, going back to Aristotle, who talked about how all the best poets and playwrights had a melancholy habit. Um, and then, of course, there are the romantic poets in the 19th century who really venerated sadness, saw sadness as a necessary precursor to poetic greatness. So there is this long-standing association between states of sadness and creative production. I think science can begin to explain why that link exists. There's kind of the story that uh, to be a great artist, you have to have a bug in your ear. You have to be suffering, suffering artists. Suffering artists. Okay. But coming back a little bit to this uh, link between, uh, or apparent link in any case, between our emotions like sadness or even anger. Apparently, some people are more creative when they're angry. Could this be understood in terms of evolution? Is there some sort of evolutionary pressure here that would produce this in the sense that if you're unhappy or even angry, 
then there might be some threat to your life that that may be causing Mm. that. And consequently, by being creative, you may be able to haul yourself out of a hole. Yeah, there is. There are some people who speculate. There's a team of psychiatrists at the University of Virginia who speculate that that one of the reasons depression is so common is because depression is really just a response to a life problem. So when people are sad, they become more vigilant, more focused, more intent on solving their problems. So they get stuck in this cycle of rumination, which, of course, is terribly unpleasant you know, makes us miserable, literally miserable. And yet maybe it makes us better at solving these problems and coming up with creative solutions to these longstanding stressors. So this is very, very speculative research. But people are beginning to see, you know, the effects of emotion on cognition in terms of possible evolutionary roots, trying to understand why these negative emotions even exist. Because, of course, they're not fun. They're not pleasant. They don't make us happy. And yet they also seem to come with some cognitive perks. Well, finally, Jonah, I'm a fairly upbeat person. If I want to be creative, (laughs) should I have an attitude adjustment downward? I don't think so. It's great to be happy. I just think the real lesson of this research is that we should, in a sense, learn to celebrate our negative moods, too. We should see them as having virtues and functions as well. That I think we live in a society that tends to valorize happiness. We assume it's always better to be happy. And most of the time it is. Most of the time when you're happy, you'll have more insights and more epiphanies. But sometimes it helps to be a little melancholy, too, because that makes it easier to edit those epiphanies into reality. Jonah Lair, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Jonah Lair is the author of Imagine How Creativity Works. Well, it sounds as though happiness is a wonderful state because it's happiness, um, but it also can give you inspiration. And then sadness can focus your mind in a way or drive you to find solutions. Well, I'm happy to hear that in a way, but I have to say the one emotion that really gets me to be creative is the fear that accompanies a deadline. There's nothing that focuses the mind like a deadline. I wish my staff felt the same way. Thanks to our emotionally stable but creatively volatile production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Second That Emotion. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? It makes us happy, not sad, and you can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because the Internet just makes you angry or depressed, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. As we always say on Big Picture Science, we present science stories that matter. Want to support the show but are too busy surfing the net and shopping for shoes online? We've got the fix. Go to bigpicturescience.org's support page and download the Good Search toolbar. It takes less than a minute. The radio show will get a penny for every search and even more when you make purchases from the Good Shop. Make Big Picture Science your charity of choice and support us without any cost to you. Good Search and Big Picture Science, searching that makes a difference. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.